Sebel is someone I've known for many years, but I think that even if you're listening to her for the first time, it won't take you long to appreciate her quick wit and sense of humor. She is the definition of a fintech entrepreneur who started her career almost by chance, but quickly found her niche in wealth management and financial planning. Her journey didn't end there, of course, and she quickly set on a mission to bring down the cost of financial planning services. Nikki is currently building a software to solve this, all while getting more women into the space. In this episode, we explore the trials and tribulations of setting up a tech startup in London, knocking on C-suite doors, and building a network of clients through freelance contracting. And if you're wondering how hockey can help you build a career in finance, then you have to listen to Nikki's advice. You're right. Who knows how it came about, but a lot of people, and actually male or female, um, feel that you know asking for help is a show of weakness, and that might be something that they're not they're not willing to do. Um, but I would I would challenge that back is that you know there are people out out there like me who feel good about helping. Um, and so sometimes asking for something for some help on something trivial can actually um, can actually make their day as well. Welcome, Nikki. I'm so glad to have you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me, Chrissy. Well, mo- what our listeners might not know is that we've actually known each other for a long time through common friends. And one of the things that always struck me about you was that you were certainly not shy to go out there, start new things, try new things and and meet people. And I think that has played some role in shaping your career as well. So let's start with this. People can probably hear that you're Australian. How did you end up in London? What brought you here and what are you focusing on at the moment? Absolutely. So um, I started um started my career down under in Australia I'm a bit I'm a bit sad that you can hear my accent so clearly because I've been working so hard on 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 almost not not trying to hide it but kind of blend in a bit more over here Mm. in London um but yeah so I uh started my career in Australia I studied finance at uni um and had was it was instantly drawn to kind of the world of economics and finance I think I was kind of one of those lucky ones that knew that I wanted to be in this space um, quite early on. And um, I was also quite fortunate to get some part-time work while I was at uni, uh, working in a, in a portfolio administration service in wealth management, and that basically kicked off my career from there. So since I was 17, I've been working in the sector I've hmm. been in. Uh, but I got to a point, um, you know, about, let's say, five five or so years into my career where I realised I was a bit, I wasn't ready to settle down. Um, I come from Perth, which is known as the most isolated city in the world, and uh, <laughs> decided if I was going to start a, you know, a service of a wealth management service with clients of my own, that I needed to kind of know where I wanted to be before doing that. So hmm. I decided to go find somewhere um, with kind of more lights, should we say, more opportunities. And I thought, uh, where better to start than uh, to start the next phase in London? So mm. I took the plunge, moved across, uh, across to the other side of the world, probably one of the furthest points from my family possible. Um, and I didn't didn't know anyone when I first moved over. Um, had um, kind of no contacts. Um, obviously, had known some people that had done it, um, but was was really fresh. So that was that was the start of uh, this phase of my life. 
Yeah, so you take the plane, you come to London, and then what happens next? Obviously, career-wise, you go for, you find a flat, you find friends. I think that's that's resolved. But then you <laughs> end up getting a job. You're not starting straight away um, to build your own business. You said you wanted to get a bit of experience somewhere else and learn the business first. That's it. I think uh, just before I jumped on the plane, I had a um, I was trying to find a job. Um, uh, I found. There was there was nothing nothing jumping out, but I spoke to one or two recruiters and they just said, "Oh, you won't have a problem. You'll be fine." Mm. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm I consider myself a risk averse person, but everyone else seems to see the opposite in me. Um, and and I guess this is one of those examples of yeah, just um, giving it a go. Uh, so I I knew there were there would be some opportunities. The first thing I did when I got here was joined a hockey club. Um, I actually landed in Heathrow at about uh, 4 p.m. and took um, took the Heathrow Express straight to Paddington and went down to the local hockey club that night um, and trained. Uh, that was mm. that was kind of my my first step. I was I was so excited to be there, but also knew that that's such an opportunity to meet um, meet mm-hmm. people. Um, hockey clubs are are great for meeting other professionals, particularly in London. Um, and actually, uh, the first job I took was a part-time job uh, that I found through someone in my hockey team um, that was looking for someone to, to crunch some data um, on some um, marketing analytics. And and that's what kind of started me off. From there, I went so to find tip, flat. <laughs> so tip number friend. one, if you can play sports, go for that because that's a way, you know, it's not what people would usually think about when it comes to building a network. They're probably, oh, networking events or, you know, being on social media or things like that. But no, you actually found them much more simple and straightforward way. That That's it. I, I highly recommend sporting clubs. And, and as I say, in London, it's the best place because, you know, most most if you're kind of looking to work in a in a London profession, the chances are there are, there are other people that that know someone or know something or have a job going in in mm-hmm. in a similar industry that can help you out. And also finding a spare room, it's very mm-hmm. very good place to look. So yes, highly recommend sporting clubs. Okay, so maybe when you go on spare room, focus on the professions of the people uh, renting the room before you actually focus on who they are. But no, I think that's a fair fair tip. But okay, so you did some data crunching, and then uh, where did that take you? So uh, I was um, I've always always loved job applications. Um, I think I find uh, particularly in job interviews as well, it's the one chance you have, probably other than a podcast recording, uh, to speak about yourself and not be not be apologetic mm-hmm. for speaking and not listening. Um, so so why why wouldn't you love an opportunity to just talk about yourself? Um, so I, I lined up as many as possible. I had um, a, a couple of asset managers, um, a bank, um, and I think the first, first role I took was a kind of a middle office um, role, uh, kind of a, a tech focused in a, for a discretionary fund manager. Um, and that that was kind of a bit of a um a baptism of fire into london not not for the work so much but it was in canary wharf and it was in november and i remember taking taking the tube from angel um down to bank jumping on the dlr coming out underground at canary wharf walking underground to the office um in one of those darkest months um, for about six weeks and finding myself um, wondering what I was doing with my life. Um, mm. But, uh, you know, those, those are one of those moments um, and decided that that, that role wasn't, wasn't quite for me. 
Um, but I was in the process of quite a few others and I'd, I'd quite consciously decided to do some contracting. Um, so these were all contract roles I was looking for. Um, I didn't, I didn't know exactly what it was I wanted to do. And so I thought that was the, the most rational way to start. So, uh, Mm. I did that role for about two months. Um, you know, I, I'd always, I look back on it and I would say to anyone else, like, if, if you know you're doing something that doesn't work for you, um, you know, don't, don't ever feel bad about, doing making the decision that that means the most to you I think mental you know mental health and well-being is really important so I I look back and say deciding to quit a job that meant I didn't see the sunlight for for six weeks was probably a good decision Um, yeah well I think in London that happens a lot and it's probably quite a shock moving from Australia as well I'm not (laughs) sure we can fix the the light problem in winter but certainly if the whole atmosphere and the place that you're going Uh to doesn't make you feel any lighter once you get there then that's probably a problem. And mm-hmm. and it's interesting. I was at a networking event last night and that's exactly what people were. It was part of the discussion. Like when do you know it's time to move on? How do you decide? And you, you did describe yourself as, as risk averse. So surely when you went into contracting, which obviously comes without the security of a full-time job, you must have thought about that. And, you know, what was the risk analysis there? <laughs> Oh, so many. Um, so, so there was probably a stage. I think um, it was quite for me. I always tied down by a visa. So when I my kind of two years uh, were were approaching its end, two years Australians get a two year visa for the UK. I think it might be three now. Um, I had to look for someone that would give me a sponsorship to stay. Um, I remember that being incredibly stressful. Um, and my fortunately, the employer I was working for at the time, a, a tech company actually, uh, offered to um, sponsor me so that I could stay. Um, but what that meant is that I was handcuffed to the company um, and that came with a five-year visa. Um, I am I'm a kind of... Uh, not not impatient, but I'm a I guess a progressive person. I want to be I want to be moving. I want to be engaged, um, and I want to be challenged at any aspect of of my career. And so knowing that I might be kind of involved in that same role for such a long time, um, you know, in some sense was was quite stressful for me. Um, knowing that I had no kind of options to change my career or, or change change jobs or change company was was stressful. Um, and eventually I found um, I found a different job where the company was willing to take on the visa, um, which was which was great. But it wasn't until um, I I was able to obtain a, a global talent visa that mm-hmm. meant I could start contracting. And I think for me, you know, that whole journey, there'd been a goal to say, be able to work for myself and become self-employed. Perhaps it was because it wasn't something I was allowed to do for that whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it became a kind of a North Star uh, for me. So um, from from the risk analysis point of view, there was minimal at that point. I had I'd built up quite a, um, I, I guess, a quite a niche expertise in, in the wealth management technology I was working with. And that meant there were opportunities available. I just needed the visa or the kind of ability mm-hmm. to contract to be able to do that. So when I got that visa in 2019, I um, uh, started, um, set up my company and, and started consulting. Mm-hmm. So that's actually an interesting point I was hoping we're going to get to, because I think for those who've never gone through that, and I'm sure there's some amongst our listeners, how does one get that global talent visa? It doesn't sound like an easy process, and it <laughs> never is. Uh, you know, um, I suppose, um, yeah, was it really the desire to be 
a contractor or just kind of having that independence? Is that really what helped you, motivated you? Or was there something else as well? I think at at that time of doing it, it was the risk of getting kicked out of the country. That was a, the, the biggest motivator. <laughs> Motivating um, factor, yes. <laughs> but obviously, you know, I could have I could have always gone back to Australia if I wanted to. Mm. So I would say, you know, aside from that, um, the ability to work, um, to to be self employed, to make my own decisions, um, and um, yeah, be able to to be doing, um, I guess, taking my career in my own hands and having complete control over that as complete mm. as one can have. Um, but that visa was uh, was definitely the high uh, up there and one of the most stressful times for me. Obviously, that risk of getting kicked out of the country at the time I had, I think I had 60 days to finish the application. Um, the I think it was something like 40 pages in total. Um, things like um, think, think about like writing a CV and pages and pages of endorsements about yourself. And then you had to go and find um, other C-suite executives um, in, I think the requirement was C-suite in a global company to write an endorsement for you. Um, and I, I don't know right. if, if anyone listening to this podcast can sit there and think, um, you know, who are the C-suites that you would go to and, and how would you do it? How do you um, do that? Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I think uh, it was probably then that I started getting really good at LinkedIn um, and having, mm. you know, having draft endorsement letters there ready to go and, and saying, you know, all I need is a signature, um, unless you want to say something yourself. Um, but uh, but there were yeah. people that you had; that those were people that you had met before. You weren't just emailing random C suites. No, no, exactly. You had worked with those people. Yeah, they were. Exactly. I was. I mean, I was very lucky, and I didn't. It didn't. You know, those. Um, those contacts were were really helpful in the end. Um, I think I I approached maybe uh, I needed two, and I think I approached four in total. So it's a a great response rate. Um, but yeah, they were um, a mix of kind of uh, uh, people that I'd worked for and customers that I'd worked with. And mm-hmm. you know, I they have have a place in my heart. You know, I, they didn't get anything back for it in return. So I, I will always, um, I guess, you know, be grateful for that. Um, and mm. what else did I have to do? Yeah, I think it was 40 pages of application. I think that's where I got a bit of a hint yeah. of, um, yeah. hint of, I seem to be all right with applications. Um, I, but you know, I remember when they sent me the approval email to say that I got the visa. I, I couldn't, I couldn't read it myself at the time. I had to get my boyfriend to read the, the email for me. I was so, so panicked. Nervous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mm. especially if you, you were on the threat of being <laughs> deported but look it all it all has a positive you know happy ending in, in the end and I you know it, it does sound like some of those challenges are actually what helped you later on to get gain that confidence when you were building your business and going out and looking for um, contracts and jobs because I think the idea we all always over romanticize the idea oh I want to work for myself and it's great to be self-employed and have the freedom but that comes with a cost and there's a lot of stress involved and it's and it's equally hard work if not even more isn't it yeah it absolutely is and and you know I'm thinking if you if you're someone you're 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 a manager of a firm um let's say you've had experience in hiring people like think of the effort that goes into that hiring process to bring someone on board, whether they're, you're deciding whether they're a permanent or a contract and, and deciding exactly what you want and then know how many CVs come at you, how many people you're looking through, um, and then put yourself on the other side of the fence and say, I'm, I'm, I'm a consultant or a contractor and I'm one of this many, um, you know, and, and, and just kind of realistically looking at, at, at where you fit into the ecosystem is, is probably important. Um, hmm. 
So, yeah, I think uh, that, that comes back to that risk analysis that you mentioned earlier. Um, risk analysis with a bit of confidence, I guess. But that Okay, so that didn't put you off and you started getting those jobs. So how did you go about it? Did you have a you know, methodology? Was it people that you've worked with in the past? And then how do you build a network? And I think when you're working for yourself, even if it's not a company and you're providing a service, how do you build a brand almost or build reputation and distinguish yourself, as you say, from all the other people that are looking for the same jobs? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, I think early in my career, um, you know, building a network was as simple as doing your job and doing it well. Um, and building a name for yourself and and I was fortunate enough to be in a quite a client facing role so a consultant in much of what I was doing and and that you know every time you do a piece of work um, you you are in essence building a building a network and kind of you need to decide what you want to be known for do you want to be known for your delivery or you know maybe the maybe the social aspect of, of being likable or um, you know all of the above what, what's most important to you for the future um, but I think um, for me, uh, later and more recently in my career, the most important thing is um, is helping people. Um, and I try and, you know, I try and cover off most calls with like, can I help you with anything? Because um, doing doing a favor for someone, it makes me feel good. Um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't just potentially help them, but it makes me feel good about myself. And you never know when it might come back, um, come back and help you. And so I, you know, I challenge myself to be as helpful as possible to to anyone. And I notice, you know, I, I notice a lot of other people in my network are the same. And I just kind of every time someone does do a favor for me, I just think like there's su such a lovely person and I want to help lovely people um, and lovely people know lovely people. So your network, you know, can just can just grow on the back of on the back of good relationships. Um, so I definitely, mm. uh, as you say, I think it's the most important thing, particularly if you if you do want to become um, become a business owner or a self-employed, um, you'll, you'll never know when you need some help. Mm. Yeah, it's certainly it, it's interesting because whenever I speak to other entrepreneurs, particularly, but any job, really, I find that we always come back to this point about being surrounded by people that you want to be more like and yeah. getting the inspiration from them. And that thing about if you ask for help, you usually get it. It's surprising. We're so hesitant. I think especially sometimes us as women, we, we we really wait until the last minute before we ask for help. I don't know why it is that way. But then actually, you surprisingly, you find that people actually want to help. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, you're right. Who knows how it came about? But a lot of people and actually male or female um feel that you know asking for help is a show of weakness and that might be something that they're not they're not willing to do um but i would i would challenge that back is that you know there are people out out there like me who feel good about helping um and so sometimes asking for something for some help on something trivial can actually um can actually make their day as well mm. so yeah, so you did some of that. You did the networking that worked out okay, and then you, you know you you enjoyed contracting and, and having your own consultancy. But I think there was always something else that you wanted to do, which led you to 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 go out there and and start doing your own starting your own firm. That, that's it. Um, you know, consultancy there for me was always a means to an end. Um, what where my true passion lies is in is in products, building products. Um, uh, when I you know, early early in that London journey, I started working for a tech company, 
um, and fell in love with tech. So uh, a lot of a lot of people in my industry say they fell into finance, but I fell out of finance and fell into tech. And working through all the journey, um, sorry, all the value chain in the in the tech industry, I decided that the product space was something that I was really passionate about. Um, where consultancy, you kind of you go in, you help solve a problem for a business, um, but you solve it once, um, and you solve it in in a very very small way. Um, that's that's great. It can leave leave you feeling really great. But where my passion lies is solving that with a with a product which can enable you to scale that solution. So you're not just solving it once; you're solving it for many. And um, where uh, my my heart really lay at the point of of starting consultancy was um, an idea I had a company called Niche, which was about matching women with financial advisors. So helping helping t- uh, with financial literacy, helping women understand more about their financial journey um, and their financial future and matching them with an appropriate solution, whether that is a financial advisor or some content or some various different solutions that can help them feel better about um, better about their finances and, and and better about where they're at. And. So, um, so at this point, I embarked on on starting a company um, at the same time as the consultancy and building and building this product. Mm-hmm. And how does one go about doing this? Because it sounds very easy. Yeah, I decided to build a product, and 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 so I did it. But I think there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that you, you know you you had to um, that we don't see, but you probably put on on the end. And I, you know, just um, what was. The, the driving for was it was it really wanting to build something or was it more you know the we, we touched upon the the issue with um female literacy when it comes to finance and investments um so i think um i think there's obviously the the two parts you've called out they're they're the necessary ingredients um into into let's say the startup space in terms of creating some sort of innovative product or solution um, that that doesn't doesn't already exist. Um, I think you need um, yeah you need that desire to want to build something and you need to have the desire to solve a problem. And so the problem there being f- uh, financial literacy for women, um, and then me having the experience of of working in product management kind of coupled with that desire to solve something um, was was what was needed. And I think um, as many, many um, people in their product management careers will will know is that working on someone else's product or, or a product that the company they're working for um, does is is um, is a really great experience to learn how to build something. As you say, like, how do you go about it and start um, being a product manager is really pivotal to, um, to kind of looking at the problem, the solution, um, and the how of how you how you deliver something. Um, but um, many like like myself kind of have this spark um, that feel that feels like it needs to be um, unleashed on something of your own almost. Um, so um, I, I guess how did, how did I start? I um, I started with a business case. I always start with a business case, and and I'm a I'm a bit of a um, I love decks. Um, so I love putting together um, my first PowerPoint deck. I remember I remember doing that for this problem, and it's something actually I look at it every now and then. I just that 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 first deck I did for niche um, means a lot to me, and um, and that allows you to kind of work through the case end to end. And I think it's um, a lot of a lot of people that want to start up a business think it's about building building the product or building the solution straight off, um, but really actually it's it's about the 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 softer edges. It's about speaking to people. It's about 
um, validating validating that what you think is a problem is really a problem. Um, and so fortunately, in this this respect for me, it meant I was out there to speak to women. Um, speak to um, I spoke to friends, I spoke to people in my hockey club, I spoke to basically anyone, um, and that it validated a lot of the thoughts I had already had um, about this being a problem. Um, to the, to this date, I don't. There are probably most of the women I'm friends with have asked me at some point in time, should I get a financial advisor? Do I need one? Um, I've got these problems. Um, can you can you tell me how to deal with them? And that I I don't know many people that that don't have those questions in their head, unless perhaps they're a financial mm-hmm. advisor themselves. So if someone's listening now and thinking, where do I start? You know, we're not going to give financial advice, but it's more like what are the steps if you, let's say you're in the middle of your career, or maybe even a bit earlier, let's say early mid-20s, you have saved a little bit of money um, and then you're sitting, well, where do I really start? Yeah, it, that's exactly it. And I think, um, I, you know, I've heard all different variations of the question, the questions, um, but I think it all comes down to, everything in life it's not just about it's not just about finances but it's what are your goals and objectives um where do you mm-hmm. see yourself in 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 two five ten years time um and, and it's uh, it's a lot about self-discovery um it's about kind of looking looking in in inside yourself and, and trying to understand that and you know even for myself it's it's hard to kind of predict where I'm going to be in those places and it's a really kind of it's a really confronting exercise to do um, but unless you've done that, you know, can you can you go and seek financial advice from someone if you don't know what it is you're trying to achieve? Um, so mm. de- definitely so, yeah. recommend thoughts like that. Yeah. So if you actually decided, well, look, I don't have the knowledge, you should probably get a qualified financial planner. Um, but then how do you find one? And it's, it's, it sounds like this is the problem that you were trying to solve with, with the niche. It, it's, exactly where, do, where does one find, a, you know, if you want a hairdresser, you walk down the street and you find one on Google. But then how do you go about finding a financial advisor, someone that you can really relate to and trust? Because it's, it, yeah, these relationships take years and years to build. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, without um, trying to answer the question of one of the assumptions mm-hmm. we had of it, had as a business, it's uh, you know, what options do you have? You ask a friend, um, you ask a family mm-hmm. member, um, you ask a partner, um, you know, all of which, you know, have their pros and cons. But that's that's kind of what most people tend to do at the moment. Um, and, you know, that it's not just for financial advice at the end of the day either it's if you need a lawyer if you need an accountant um there's kind of this professional services network of 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 who is it what is it that i need who is it that i need and and how do i trust that person once i find that it's it's definitely a huge problem so niche was effectively a platform that allows you to connect mm-hmm. with qualified advisors and you know probably take some of the hassle away um by using tech i suppose exactly um that's the way, and I think uh, you know, engaging with with the younger generations like ourselves, mm-hmm. Chrissy, um, where we we do go to tech first to do that. Um, do we go to Google? Do we go to an app? Um, mm-hmm. uh, but how do you how do you kind of um, make that available? That information more available to everyone. So yeah, yeah and nice. I think that sometimes people may not even realize that you don't need to be a millionaire to to, to be looking and using the services of financial planner that you know there are many people out there who would work with you and there are ways to do that without necessarily having to be you know extremely wealthy and I think that's another misconception that I often come across because I work in the financial services industry but if I didn't I probably wouldn't have known that 
yeah that's exactly it um I think um I think it's also it's such a shame that many people have the experience of like for example let's say they go and speak to um a ref, a financial advisor that was their parents or, or mm. you know a friend's parents or something and then they have a bad experience because they weren't the right target customer for that financial advisor and then it kind of leaves them thinking you know not not let's say not good enough because they didn't have enough money to to meet that criteria for that company and I think you know that's definitely what we what we we seek to try and um, to to try and fix in that is is knowing knowing exactly what it is you need because there are other services out there as as well as a traditional financial advisor things like financial coaches um, things that are as you know as costly as a gym membership um, mm-hmm. and and just as worthwhile in some yeah. sense. Yeah. So what happened with Niche? Like, where, where is that now? And I, I'm asking this question because I know that that's not the only project that you've worked on. You actually have another new project that you're investing a lot of your resources and, and energy into. Um, sometimes, you know, um, you can launch a few things, you can take a few steps back, pause, come back. And I think that's an important element of that non-linearity of careers that we we like to talk about on this show. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I have, um, I've had a few friends ask, you know, feel um, something about a project that they're working on on their own. And I kind of turn around and I go, well, what do you think about niche? And they go, I think it's the best idea ever. And I go, yeah, but it's paused right now. Um, and they go, yeah, but it'll come back. So I think it is definitely a, a, a focal point for um, for many people to know that you, you can have an idea. It might not always be at the front of your mind. It might not always be something you're working on. Um, but, um, but, if it, but if it's a good one, um, if it's a good idea, if it's a good project, it will come back. Um, but uh, no, my, most of my focus right now goes into my current, my new company um, called Woven Advice, um, and what we do is build um, build software, build technology for the financial advisors that are actually sitting behind behind the niche platform. And what we aim to do is is help to um, help to bring better automated tools to financial advisors so that they can bring down the cost of their services. Um, one of the challenges and the reasons financial advice can be so expensive, or let's say the financial advisors have such a high um, kind of requirement or barrier to entry for new customers, um, is because it's really expensive to produce financial advice. So our technology seeks to reduce that cost, allowing financial advisors to bring on more more clients. So um, right now we're we're very very busy building, um, selling, and fundraising for Wave and Advice. Um, all, all all while knowing that Niche will have its moment um, because once we succeed with our Wave and Advice vision, um, we're going to need to start to bring new 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 customers, new clients, particularly women, into this space and make sure that everyone's benefiting from affordable financial advice. Well, I love how it's all connected and, and there are a few themes that keep recurring and, you know, your love of financial services and wealth management, but then also the tech, which you said is really your, your calling and combining those two because you may have a great idea, but if you haven't really done that in the past, maybe you're not the best person to, to launch it. Um, but yeah, but where do you hope this would take you? Um, what What's ahead of you? And, and particularly because you mentioned fundraising is, you know, how does one do that? Uh, yeah, good question. And I, I think, um, you know, what I learned, probably the first thing I learned from from Niche is um, how much um, grit and resilience is needed to run a startup. Um, you're really, at the end of the day, you're only accountable to yourself. Um, and if you wake up one day and say, I don't want to do this today, then no one's going to make you. 
Um, and obviously over time that changes um, as you get, as you build out a team, um, you become accountable to them. As you get customers, um, you're accountable to your customers. But really, um, it's a roller coaster ride um, running it, running a business or, or running a startup. Um, it has its it has its ups and downs. And I I think, you know, one of those is is really attached to, to money. Um, I don't think I've ever I've spoken to many founders that haven't used the word, you know, remortgage at some point um, because, um, you know, the right thing to do is run any business lean. Um, and I think that helps you make good decisions good decisions around your customers and good decisions around your products. Um, but ultimately, um, a business doesn't pay for itself. Um, and unless you have come from a background where you, you've you got lots of money or you know lots of people with money, um, it's it's not an easy journey. Um, and um, that's, I, I guess, that that's one of the challenges um, what we walk into. And I think that was, you know, also one of the big challenges for niche um, because any kind of any platform that you're running that you're selling to customers and individuals um, where you want to provide them a benefit but you don't want to charge them so much um, that it takes time to build that network and it takes time to build enough revenue to self-fund the business. Um, so um, inevitably you're going to have to go and find external funding to do that. Hmm. Yes, I think that's... Um... It, it's interesting because when you and I were talking about funding, you were also talking about the importance of having a ideally a diverse team of funders. Because what I understand is that when these funders come on board, they don't just give you money. Usually, they get involved in some ways and in, into maybe providing advice because they come from a specific sector. And you, you know, you don't just need people with money. You actually, need people with expertise and money. Ideally, so how does that work? Yeah. Um... I think um, you, you know there is a lot of a lot of pressure in many industries and and particularly businesses of a specific size to in, increase their EDI and um, <clears throat> diversity across their teams. There's very little of that in startup land, so you know there's there's no kind of pressure to hire a specific team or um, or have a board um, with any requirements. Um, but obviously, being a female founder, it's really important to me um, to have diversity in both the board level and in the team. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think that's a game changer for building good products as well, um, because uh, the target, you know, the criteria of customer is, is going to change more and more over time. I think if you were selling into financial services um, 20 years ago, you could almost you could almost assume you were going to be selling in, into a man. But but that's changing. Um, and so startups mm -hmm. need to keep up with that. And so it's really important to me to find, um, you know, I'm looking for diverse investors and um I think that I'm finding a challenge because, um, you know, when you're looking for when you're looking for a board team, um, the pool of, you know, qualified potential investors um, or advisors um, all of a sudden comes back to that gender split that it was in 10, 20 years ago. Um, so it's de definitely a challenge, but uh, it, it's not impossible. Hmm. And if you could, I always like to ask that question, if you could go back and, you know, think about how you did things. Most people say, oh, I wouldn't change every, anything because it was all part of the journey. And I'm sure you, you'd agree with that. But if you could help someone else who's maybe starting out now and you probably wasted a lot of time here and there and you wish you hadn't, even though it was a learning experience, um, what advice would you give them? Um, don't hesitate. 
Hmm. I think uh, time is the one thing you can't get back. So um, uh, start whatever it is that you you think you might want to do sooner rather than later because you won't get that time back. Uh, something I always um, ask myself or ask my friends if, if they're looking for advice on something is um, if you do X, Y, Z or you don't do, how will you feel in six months, 12 months, two years time? Um, and I think for me, the fear is that in, in two years time, I sit there and go, oh, I should have done, I should have started that business and I hadn't. And so I think um, the sooner you do something, the sooner you learn from it, um, you get the option to decide whether you keep doing it. Um, and and so I would definitely, definitely advise um, advise that. Yeah, well, I think that captures your personality and your spirit very well. So it's probably a great note to end the conversation um, on. But thank you so much for joining me today and best of luck with your future growth. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Chrissy. It was lovely to chat with you. I hope that my conversation with Nikki has left you feeling lighthearted, but also motivated to finally start working on that project that you know you've been putting off for so long. Next time on the show, we have Simone Muller, a former ballerina who, after a serious back injury, discovered the low-pressure fitness technique, prompting her to set up one of the first postnatal rehabilitation studios in the UK. Thank you so much for listening to The Sound of Breaking Glass. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow us on your podcast app, tell a friend about us, or check us out on LinkedIn. New episodes are released every other Wednesday. It's been a real pleasure. Till next time. <laughs>